Amen. I'm going to invite you to remain standing. There's a cool tradition in the Christian church, different denominations across the ages, where we stand when the gospel is read. Because Jesus came to stand among us, to be in our midst. He took on flesh, and so we get to live his life. And so this morning as we continue standing, I'm going to read the gospel text for us from the lectionary this week. We will be in Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. You're welcome to read along in the Pew Bible if you want. It's a different translation. This is going to be NIV up here, and you're welcome to follow along on the screen as well. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for this time of worship we've shared together today. I thank you for helping to prepare our hearts. I thank you that no matter how we came in here today, whatever we brought with us into this space, that you have met us here. You're already meeting us here. There's nothing you call us to that we have to accomplish on our own, including opening our hearts to receive from you. So I just pray that you would pour out your grace this morning, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and open our ears, that we might be able to truly hear you speak, and that we might be faithful to respond. God, as we prepare our hearts, we are united in prayer, and we pray together the prayer you first taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, who's surprised that we have a little bit of a doozy of a passage again this morning? That seems to be our theme throughout this Year with Jesus series. And that's, you know, we have the lectionary to thank for that. There's a lot more scripture than popularly gets preached on, but all of it is beneficial for our growth with Jesus. So this morning we're going to dive into a passage that if we were to just read it as words on a page, part of it might sound harsh or maybe even unfeeling, or it might even seem to kind of negate the compassion that Jesus otherwise seems to preach. That was kind of my initial take when I first read this passage. But the interesting thing is, this story would not have shocked or offended anyone in the original audience. Jesus often is trying to step on toes, but what feels offensive to us here would not have shocked anyone in the original audience. And that means there's a gap, a gap between our world and theirs. And we've got to acknowledge that gap if we're going to be able to skip over any offense we think we might feel and get to the real message. So to help us find our bearings as we navigate through this text today, we're going to talk about two different kinds of context. 
literary context and historical context. We're talking about this and digging into it in the Bible class downstairs before church. We took a break today. We've got three more weeks. That's a plug, shameless plug. You can still come. Learn how to do this yourself. Okay, but today we're going to talk about context in two ways. So first, to be aware of the literary context, the first thing we can do pretty easily at this point is identify the genre. This is another parable. We've had several, many weeks in a row now, which means that this story is not meant to be literally interpreted or directly applied. We're not supposed to go out and have some sort of master-servant relationship and act exactly the way they do in this passage. It's not that kind of a story. We're meant to sit with it, to allow the message at the heart of it to kind of meet us when we least expect it. That's a parable. We also need to recognize that this story is placed within a larger gospel account. Luke has been crafting themes that are building, and he intends us to pay attention to what he's already said and carry that with us. So the last few weeks, we've heard parables that are actually right next to this one. It's all connected. And those parables have been filled with warnings and statements of judgment about those who do not care for the poor. It's been made very clear in the parables of the last few weeks that Jesus calls his disciples to love and to care for the poor, to choose compassion. And we're meant to carry that lesson with us into today's parable. And finally, we need to be clear about the audience of this story. We are the audience today, yes, but we're not the first and really not even the primary audience for what Jesus says here. We need to pay attention to the flesh and blood right there in front of him, people that Jesus was first talking to. And interestingly, it's a mixed crowd. For the last several parables and for this one again today, Jesus is talking to both his disciples and a group of Pharisees. And those are the wealthy, very powerful, prestigious religious leaders. So it makes sense that the last few weeks, Luke had Jesus talking directly to the Pharisees with those parables. He was warning the richest and the most powerful among the religious elite that they were in danger of missing the kingdom. But the disciples were right there. They could hear and benefit from these parables too. It's just that the Pharisees were in the spotlight. But today, Jesus' focus shifts. Or we could say that the lights dim on stage right and they come up on stage left so that the disciples are now in the spotlight. But the Pharisees are still there. And we're meant to remember that everybody is listening in. So the spotlight comes up on the disciples because they speak. They pipe up. They say of Jesus, increase our faith. And if we're really going to know what they're asking, we need to know that faith in the Gospel of Luke is not some sort of intellectual assent. They're not saying, help us believe stronger or more or more rightly. It's not a matter of believing in their heads. Faithfulness in the Gospel of Luke is about getting our hands dirty, wearing out our feet, walking long, and following closely after Jesus. Biblical scholar Joel Green says that when we see faith in the Gospel of Luke, we should understand it to be an active, deeply invested kind of faithfulness. So the disciples are really crying out to Jesus, help us to be more faithful. And that makes sense. That request makes sense. After Jesus has just made judgment statements against the Pharisees, like, okay, they're getting it wrong. Help us to be more faithful. And so Jesus responds to them with kind of a cryptic, unusual comment about faith, which we'll come back to. And then this story that to us, the 21st century reader, 
feels kind of out of character for Jesus. You see, Jesus tells a story about a master who expects his servant to do duties with no gratitude. And then what's even worse is the way the parable ends. The last phrase of the parable is, So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, when I first read this passage, I read it in the NRSV. And they chose the phrase, worthless slaves, as what Jesus was telling his disciples they should consider themselves. And that knocked the wind out of me a little bit when I read that. <laughs> I was a little bit offended, right? I was like, whew, that is not the Jesus that I know and love. He sees value and worth in all people, so what is up with that? And that is when I bumped hard and fast into the gap, the gap between our world and theirs. And this is when we must let historical context inform and guide us. This is when we have to remember that our worldview and our fundamental assumptions are entirely different from theirs. Just a quick reminder, we live in a capitalist society. It's an economic system, but it's more than economics. It's a pervasive worldview that trumpets the values of individualism and competition and profit as the highest good. Well, in the first century Greco-Roman world, capitalism was not the economic system. Rather, it was called patronage. And very much the same, it wasn't just economics, it was the entire way the world functioned in the first century. Patronage, instead of being about pulling oneself up by the bootstraps and competing with one another and becoming independently powerful and wealthy, and all of those are capitalist concepts. Patronage was a system of friendship and favors where there were designated social roles and expected duties to be fulfilled by each member of a friendship, where friendship is like a contractual obligation, okay? Friendship is a word that has a lot of social duty attached to it. Jesus' comments are made within the language and conceptual framework of patronage, where a patron would be a person with power and money and influence. And those who did not have power and money and influence were dependent on friendship with a patron for their survival. And those folks were called clients. And it was widely understood that a client had such a disparity in their relationship that they would never be able to have the wealth or the material goods to pay back the debt that they therefore owed the patron. And so it was considered a debt of gratitude. It wasn't meant to be repaid in material goods, but a client was meant to repay their patron in gratitude and faithfulness. Now, those were both seen as social duties. So gratitude was not about feelings. It wasn't about acknowledging another person for their worth and dignity. It wasn't about what we think of. Gratitude was considered a social duty to be fulfilled. Okay, we've got to keep that in mind because when we read this passage and Jesus says, would he thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? And then the implied answer is a strong no. No one in the original audience would have been surprised. In fact, they would be tracking with Jesus. Oh, right. Of course, Jesus. Gratitude is not the responsibility of the master. It's the servant's duty. So nothing about that is offensive or surprising to the original audience. So let me spell out for us what the original audience would have known instinctively upon hearing that example. Jesus is making here a statement about knowing one's 
place. Now again, as a 21st century audience, that idea maybe doesn't sit well with us. We live in a culture where being put in one's place is often a tactic of humiliation or at worst an act of oppression. But we've got to take off our 21st century glasses so that we can look through the worldview of Jesus' original audience to understand the wisdom he shares. Here's the logic of Jesus' parable. A servant will never be able to work hard enough or do enough or somehow come into enough material wealth that the master will suddenly become indebted to him. The servant is the indebted party in the relationship. It is the servant's duty to conduct themselves with faithfulness and gratitude. It is their place. Likewise, Jesus says, he wants you to think of God as the ultimate patron and you as the client in that relationship. And you should think of yourself as a servant just doing your duty. You should realize that when you live faithfully, it does not somehow make God indebted to you. Now, I'm going to pause on that comment for a moment. I think most of us would just keep moving. Very few of us, if any, would say out loud that we think God owes us something. But on the inside, where we don't have to tell people exactly what we think and feel, the reality is that most of us believe when you do good, you deserve good. Most of us believe the more you put in, the more you should get back out. And so maybe we think if we're faithful, that'll make people like us more, and maybe we'll have better friendships. Maybe we think if we're faithful, we'll suddenly prove that we're worthy, and that'll, you know, kind of notch up our estimation in God's eyes and other people's eyes. Maybe we aren't consciously thinking that way. But there's a lesson in this parable today that we need to hear because it flies in the face of what we naturally, instinctively want to believe. And friends, here's the lesson. Discipleship is not a merit-based system. It's not. Jesus says this to his disciples in the hearing of the Pharisees who are notorious for using their religious deeds as status markers. Nope, doesn't work that way, Jesus says. He says this to the very disciples who will more than once argue about who gets the place of honor at Jesus' right hand. Nope, doesn't work that way, Jesus says. Your faithfulness does not make you worth more than anyone else, and it doesn't make you worth any more to God. Jesus' message today is nope, doesn't work that way. You see, we will forever be the indebted party in our relationship with God because everything we have is gift. Everything has been given to us. We are in a place of dependence. We depend on God for our life, for our provision, for our protection. Everything we have, he is willing and able to give us. And that's a debt we can never repay. We are the party whose duty is faithfulness and gratitude. And you know what? I think there's a reason that this parable comes where it does in the gospel. The last few weeks, the parables we've been hearing have been all about the right actions for a disciple. To love and care for the poor, to choose compassion. But this passage today is about the right attitude for a life of discipleship. And friends, I believe we can call that attitude, this sense of place we're talking about, humility. I once heard a definition of humility that rocked my world. 
I have a vague memory of sitting in the uncomfortable, hardback wooden seats of Asbury University's chapel when I heard this definition. And beyond that fuzzy recollection, I really can't give you any attribution. I even Googled it, and it's not on the internet. So Asbury Chapel speaker somewhere circa 2011 to 2015 while I was there, okay, somebody said it. It's not original to me, but I have carried it with me for years, and it has been incredibly important to my walk with Jesus. And this is it. Humility is agreeing with God about who he says he is and who he says I am. Let me read that again. Humility is agreeing with God about who he says he is and who he says I am. So that, friends, humility is really a matter of knowing and trusting our place. Humility is not about not thinking too much of oneself or thinking too little of oneself or not thinking about oneself at all. Rather, humility is a matter of knowing and trusting that God has given me my place and my value, and I don't have to do anything to earn it or defend it or dwell over long upon it. You see, there is freedom in knowing our place. And I'm not talking about the place society gives us. There can still be a whole lot of injustice in that. But I'm talking about the place that Jesus gives us in relationship to God the Father. Our value and merit can't increase. That's literally not the way it works. But instead, our faithfulness, instead of it being a means to achieve greater power or prestige in the kingdom, our faithfulness just increases capacity for the power of God to work in us and through us. And that's what Jesus means at the beginning of what he says. Let's go back to that. In response to the disciples' plea to increase their faith, Jesus first says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Small faith, or even just a little bit of faithfulness, is all it takes to see mighty things come to pass, Jesus says. Just a little bit. That's all it takes. And yet, the way that Jesus phrases this to his disciples, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, again implies the negative, that they don't. And it's not because the disciples aren't earnest. It's not because they aren't following closely after him and wanting to do what he does. No, you see, Jesus phrases it that way because he knows their hearts. And he knows that they are not quite clear on their motives. He knows that they have not yet figured out that faithfulness is a matter of the heart. This group is still trying to figure out who gets the place of honor when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And so Jesus' story, his parable to these disciples, is really a warning for them. The Pharisees got their warnings. This is a warning for the disciples and for us. Check your heart. I bet if Jesus was cutting right to the chase, if he wasn't speaking in parable or mystery or all of those wonderful teaching things that he uses, if he just said it straight, I think Jesus would say, your zeal is not lacking, but your humility is. What a disciple of Jesus needs is a humble heart that knows and trusts and delights in its place. As we sit here located in the 21st century, still trying to wrap our minds and our hearts around the idea that knowing our place isn't a negative thing when it comes to Jesus, I have one more word to encourage us. 
Because I recognize that hearing a parable where Jesus says we're servants whose work isn't really even that valuable. It's not what he's saying, but that's how it sounds. I realize that can be discouraging. But there's more. There's more in scripture for us to hear on this. We are all servants, yes, of the kindest master. But we are also friends. Chosen, intimate, beloved friends of Jesus. He says so himself in the Gospel of John. And even though today's parable does not show up in the Gospel of John, and that's because out of all the Gospel writers, more than anyone, John's got his own thing going, John is still writing about the same relationships and the same interactions. And so I think it's totally reasonable to believe that the disciples who are listening to the farewell discourse in John have also heard the parable Luke captures for us. They've been invited to be faithful servants who know their place. And so now it is to them and to us that Jesus says these words. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. The place we've been given is a really good one. It's not a hardship to know and trust and delight in our place because Jesus is a really good friend. He chose us to work alongside him and his Father to bear the lasting fruits of love and compassion and shalom in this world. He's very clear about what the duty of a disciple is to love one another. And from the last few weeks, we know that that means especially to love and care for the poor, to choose compassion. These duties are not going above and beyond. They're not earning extra credit or leveling up. This is what it means to be faithful. This is the duty that we've been given, the role that we've been called to, and we are meant to walk it out with faithfulness and gratitude, all from the place of dependence, a humbled heart. Today, the message is the same for us as it was for the first disciples. So you want to be faithful? Then fulfill your duty. But first, look at your heart. Are you doing good things? Are you loving people? With a little bit of expectation still tucked in there somewhere that there's something in it for you? Are you doing good deeds, looking over your shoulder to see who's watching Wondering if you're leveling up now in someone's estimation or in God's? Or have you taken the time to humble your heart? You know, I think the easiest way to know the condition of our heart sometimes, to know if we're humble, because that's, that's really hard, right? Let's be honest. If you're just going to sit there and look inward and go, am I humble? I'm not sure how the answer is going to come to you, right? So I think the easiest way to do that, to figure that out, is to pray or to sing words that express humility. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to say a prayer that is going to help us to know. Because the truth is, as words leave your mouth, you know whether you mean them or not, right? You feel it in your gut. You feel the pushback if it's not true for you. And so as I was studying this week, God brought to mind a prayer for me called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. This was written by the founder of Methodism, which is our denomination here, John Wesley. And it's a prayer that is often prayed at the beginning of the year 
by individuals and communities alike as a way of recommitting to a life of intentional, faithful discipleship. I still remember the first time I prayed this prayer. I was also sitting in the hardback, uncomfortable wooden chairs of Asbury University's chapel. And as soon as I prayed these words, I knew that I did not mean them. But I also knew that I wanted to. It terrified me to think about giving control to God the way that these words imply. Saying that no matter what else is true of my circumstance, my place of belonging to you is enough. That terrified me. But because I was willing to be willing to maybe surrender, I started on a journey of humbling, a journey of becoming more humble that I'm still on to this day. And so as we pray this prayer together, I want to invite you to pay attention to your own internal response. Do you mean these words? Are you willing to mean these words? Or do you need Jesus, the most humble servant of all, who was obedient even to death, death on a cross, to birth humility in you? And I'm saying it that way because, friends, remember, ours is a place of dependence. Everything we have is gift. He is the one who provides for us everything we need, even and especially the humble heart required for a life of faithful discipleship. Our duty is to ask. His is to bring it to pass. But we cannot ask if we don't pay enough attention to know our need. So let's pray this prayer together today. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. Amen.